0: Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Take Nataro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com.
1: Hey, this is Sean Illing, occasional host of Fox Conversations. But I'm here today to introduce an episode hosted by NPR journalist and WBEZ podcast host, Arthi Shahani. Arthi is back this week on Vox Conversations to talk with Mexican-American investigative journalist and author Alfredo Corchado about the U.S.-Mexico border. With a legacy of Trump-era policies and Biden's ever-increasing challenges there as backdrop, they talk about the reality, politics, history, and future of the border. Here's Arthi.
0: The border. I say the border, and you immediately know I am not talking about the U.S. and Canada. The U.S.-Mexico border is both a place and a problem to be solved. Actually, it is a problem that cannot be solved after decades of political leadership trying to solve it in various ways. Whenever the border comes up in the news, whether it's children in cages or lawmakers debating a wall and funding for a wall— I have the sense, personally, that I can't really rely on what I'm hearing, that there is, in fact, a huge gap between whatever reality may be playing out on the ground uh, and how we interpret it largely through newsrooms based far away in New York and Washington, D.C. And in those moments, I sometimes think of Alfredo. You, Alfredo, Alfredo Corchado, who is our guest today on Vox Conversations. Alfredo is one of the most prolific writers on the U.S.-Mexico border, U.S.-Mexican relations, and geopolitics of migration. Uh, He has, for decades, covered that story based here in the U.S., based in Mexico, and he also has a personal experience of being a Mexican-American who migrated here, which we'll talk about later on. Alfredo, it's wonderful to have you on and to talk with you about, you know, one of the the biggest topics in current events.
2: My pleasure, Ari, and uh, honor to talk to you about such an important issue for our times.
0: I want to start with the border, okay? And to give a little bit of a context to what's happening there, when Donald Trump was president, there was a harsh message sent throughout Latin America, okay? It goes more or less, hey, if you try to come here, you will not be welcome. The encampments at the southern border, the Remain in Mexico policy, the 30-foot-high border wall, these are symbols of the Trump approach. Then you fast forward, President Biden comes in, and immediately he begins to dismantle some of the Trump approach, right? He says, hey, stop building that wall hey parents and children who come here together can stay together i'm not going to separate them you know he basically removes some of the cruelest aspects of the trump approach biden's approach is different from trump's approach and republicans are very critical of the biden approach cuz they're saying hey man you're sending the wrong message basically you're telling people in central america come on over we're open to you you know you're creating an environment of lawlessness uh, and in terms of sheer data points sheer numbers there's been a spike, a clear spike in unaccompanied children in the months of January and February. So I want your take on the dynamic that is happening at the border.
2: Well, Arti, it, it feels in many ways like a groundhog, you know, where here we go again. I mean, the issue we're seeing today is not different from Obama. It's not different from Bush. It's not different from Trump. I kind of get the sense that Biden's been very consistent or his team has been very consistent about saying the border's not open. The border's not open. But after four years of Trump, I think any sign, any change, uh, whether it's administration or even the language was going to give people a sense of hope. I remember talking to a few people back in December and they're saying, you know, this may be our moment because of a change of administration, because suddenly you heard, you know, more words about humanity, some, you know, something that was really absent in the last few years. So there is a sense that uh, maybe this is the time. You know, it, it takes me back to uh, 1986 when there was a sense that uh, maybe that this is our moment to legalize. But I, I think the focus has been too much over the last few decades about how people get here. But we're doing very little to actually get to the reasons why people are coming here. The violence, drug traffickers, uh, extortions and the economy, you throw in the hurricanes, you throw in the pandemic, and the sense of urgency is something I haven't seen. The first thing that comes out of people's mouths, you know, is pandemia.
0: And explain, I'm sorry, the first thing coming out of people's mouths is the pandemic, meaning what? That's the reason for coming here?
2: Meaning that uh, their economies have just been shattered. I mean, there, there was a report uh, recently that just, Basically, says that it set men back years, as it sets women back a decade, they're much more beset by poverty. In other words, if we thought things were tough a few years ago, the new dynamic is the pandemic and obviously climate change with the aftermath of the hurricanes.
0: Sure. And the pandemic then working differently from people south of the border than from north of the border. From the U.S. perspective, it may be this is the very worst possible time for people to come in. Stop all movements. You've got to lock down. It's dangerous. But from the standpoint of people who have been trying to come here generationally, the economic drivers are even worse under the pandemic. So the push to come is stronger.
2: I mean, exactly right. And that's something that when we interview people today, It's a new dynamic. It's a new thing. And as always, I mean, America, United States, it's always the hope for them.
0: I want to talk about why it remains the hope for them in a little bit. First, I want to ask you, there's a term that we throw around a lot, okay, secure borders. And secure borders, when I say it, it it sounds like a desirable thing, like a common sense value. Wouldn't you want a secure border as opposed to an insecure one? From your vantage point, is that a goal? Is it an achievable goal? I mean, so much of your reporting challenges the very concept of it.
2: You know, if anyone wants secure borders, it's actually the people who live on the border. I mean, I don't think anybody here wants to live in a no man's land, you know, where people come and go whenever they want. I mean, we want security. And I'm sure the Mexicans want the same thing. I think it's something that, yeah, sure, we want, but. The question is, you know, how do you get it? Do you get it with the big wall? Do you get it with more technology? And I think over the last four years, you know, this imposing 30-foot structure was a great photo op, but it didn't really deter people. I mean, you're facing a $15 billion wall and people are using $5 ladders, $10 ladders to try to scale them and get across uh, you see many injured migrants who are picked up and because of Title 42.
0: The instant expulsion, right. Mm-hmm.
2: A, you know, a rising number of injured migrants that are kicked back to Mexico. Mm-hmm.
0: And injured, you're saying, and you've reported this, injured because the higher you build the wall, they're still going to try to climb it, but they just have further to fall when they fall.
2: Exactly. I mean, they're just going to take a chance. You see much more uh, savvy uh, members of organized crime, you know, the smugglers who will just Put people through whatever risk there is for profit without caring, you know, what happens to that person, to that migrant. So I've interviewed some migrants lately who were injured, badly injured by trying to scale the wall, but that didn't deter them. I mean, everything they're trying to do here in terms of policy is aimed at deterring uh, migrants and that hasn't stopped them
0: hmm Can you explain a little bit about what happens then? So, for example, in efforts to secure the border, I mean, whether it's through a wall uh, that's built higher or, and that's a, a Trump-era policy, or through Border Patrol agents, which are a consistently bipartisan feature of, of border enforcement. Uh, first of all, so I'm still wondering, do you believe it is possible to do it? I mean, as someone who's been watching this border for decades, when you look at it—, it do you think it's possible to do?
2: I haven't seen it in in my lifetime. And I came here as an immigrant. I mean, I haven't seen it growing up. I haven't seen it as a reporter. When you pit hungry poverty against the wall, whether you have 15 or 20,000 Border Patrol agents, I mean, that's not going to deter them. I mean, when I ask people, what's going to stop you? And they say, you know, nothing. As as long as... uh, there's a glimmer Mm -hmm. of hope. As long as there's an idea that maybe we can feed our families back home or put a roof over our heads, all all we have is hope. Nothing's going to really stop us.
0: You know what strikes me as you're saying this, uh, about this, this hope, just this glimmer of hope being such a powerful driver. You wrote about a man who you followed for more than a year, Carlos Joaquin Salinas from Guatemala. He's a farmer who you may call a climate refugee, stopped getting the kinds of rains that his crop needed, he decides to come to America with his eldest son. And you write actually about the evolution and his feeling about that journey. Can you talk a little bit about Carlos Joaquin Salinas?
2: Sure. Carlos Joaquin and his son, Fernando, a small-time farmer in Guatemala. He uh, began worrying that uh, the rain wasn't coming down. The crops weren't growing as much as in the past. He saw the, his town you know, become overwhelmed by organized crime. And he starts planning ahead. I mean, how do I get my family out of this? How do I provide? He uh, sells his, uh, I, th- I think it was his goats, his farm. Basically, sells everything and begins to ask for loans, planning, plotting to get across. And then he decides, you know, which of my sons am I going to take? He picks the oldest one because he felt, uh, in his words, you know, era, era he, he seems smarter, he seems more with it. Mm-hmm. And he pays a smuggler, I think it was like something like five thousand dollars to get him to Texas and he was able to get a loan through family in the United States, through friends in the United States, and through whatever he uh, little he made back in Guatemala and In the end, you know, he sort of becomes an indenture um, servant to the smugglers because he is now in their grip, i mean as he says, you know he 's going to have to pay this amount, but he comes through Mexico. Not on the train, but on the bus. I mean, it was that easy. He gets to the border and the smuggler says, you know, just run and run until you get to the fence. Go over the Rio Grande, get to the fence and then look for the Border Patrol agent and wave and bring him in. And there's one thing that he talked about, which I thought was interesting. As he's running through the highway in Ciudad Juarez and then he gets into El Paso, a car Tells him, you know, please do not turn yourself in. Which in the last few years, I mean, that's, that's been the motto is you don't have to try to sneak in, but try to get the Border Patrol's attention and try to make a claim for asylum. I, I mm-hmm. met him, you know, Arti, I met him just two three days when he was released. And he had been living under the International Bridge. It's so the months of March. And if you know Paso, March is known for the winds. And he said, you know, we were there squeezed in like sardines. And he's, he's very distraught by the experience because he stood there with the sun. He said, you know, at times they couldn't even lay on the ground because they were so crowded. Mm-hmm. But he told me the story. And, and one of the things he kept saying, you know, this was all a lie. The idea that we could come across and it would be so easy. This world that the smugglers sold to him, it was a lie.
0: And at that time, I mean, something that struck me about your reporting and his story is I thought to myself, what migrant in the year 2019 would think, oh, I'll get to America and I'm going to be welcomed with open open arms? I mean, to me, talk about like information asymmetry. (laughs) I was like, I I didn't understand that. I literally did not understand how he could think. Well, that's,
2: that's a really good point because, I mean, it kind of tells you the kind of marketing that these migrants are using. I mean, there's, they're much more sophisticated in, in using social media. There are some videos that if you look in social media of smugglers who are actually coming in and like a video they make of themselves and said, this is how we got from Guatemala into Mexico and someone like a tour guide. And they believe that. I mean, that's what they see. But I think at least this person, I mean, in the first few months, he kept taking himself. He said, look, I am so much in debt that I can't look back. But if I could do it all over again, I wouldn't have done this. I, I regret the decision I made. I didn't want to come. And yet over the course of a year and a half, now it's almost two years, his mind's changed. You know, he, he feels different. He feels like, you know, maybe things uh, will work out.
0: Mm-hmm. And specifically because he's making more money than he could have back home his eldest son who's with him is in school and seems to be doing well because he's seeing glimmers of hope.
2: Exactly. Because of that thing called hope. Because uh, <laughs> he's been able to put a roof over the head of his family back in Guatemala because his son is now learning English and his son now speaks of maybe someday uh, going to college. He sees all this you know, through the eyes of uh, what this has done to his family, to his kids. Never mind uh, Carlos Joaquin. I mean, as, as he tells me, I am in debt for a long, long time, and I'm going to have to pay this. And I probably won't have a life, but at least my kid will.
0: And no, it's interesting how you describe it because it's kind of like there's that sunk cost mentality, like I'm so deep into it, I have no choice but to stay with the bet. But there's also the, there's a payoff. Interestingly with him, you write about this, he brings one son with him, but he leaves two behind, his wife falls into alcoholism and a relationship with somebody else. His family back home is falling apart. And I think that that's an aspect of the migrant journey we don't tend to discuss, but it's certainly meaningful, which is that you don't just sacrifice for your family, for your kids, for a better future, but there's also sacrificing some of the kids who can't come with you.
2: Exactly. I mean, he has all family back in Guatemala, it's been torn apart. He has very limited communication. When he does talk to them, you know, it's usually the weekend. I mean, you know, the interesting thing about Carlos Joaquin is he also has seen the hypocrisy in the United States where it was so difficult for him to get across. But once he gets to North Texas, suddenly he has job offers from Oklahoma. He has job offers from Nashville. And lately, you know, he's he's got an offer from North Carolina and it's always more and more money. And he says, you know, They don't really want us. I mean, why is it that when we get here? I mean, the the demand for him is is so great. He said to me last time, you know, the only day I I get off is really Sunday afternoons because during the week he's got his regular job, but on on weekends and Saturdays he's working at at a stand or he's working, you know, cutting grass or doing roofs. I mean, there's always a job uh, for him.
0: And so when you then, to loop back to my previous question about secure borders, I mean, like, I'm not saying you would or wouldn't want to advise political leaders on this front. But, like, when you think about, like, hey, man, hey, woman, you want to secure the border, this is how you do it. It sounds to me like you sort of trace it back to economics and labor.
2: Economics and and the security question. I mean, those are big, big deals. I mean, I've been to uh, neighborhoods in Honduras and Guatemala or throughout Mexico where you have regions, basically regions of silence where journalists don't really write about that or where you know it's the organized crime who controls these places. I mean, mm. a lot of these governments have basically lost control over certain regions either because they're outgunned or because of corruption. You know, they're all in it together. So you you get the sense of desperation, the sense of anxiety, the sense that, you know, we have to get out of here And yes, you know, in in the case of of Carlos Joaquin and so many others, you had to make that difficult decision. Which of my kids will be able to get ahead and at what cost?
0: Let's take a quick break. But when we're back, Alfredo mentioned smugglers. And in his work as an investigative journalist on the border, I think of him as a sort of smuggler anthropologist. So I'm really curious to know. What do D.C. policies look like from the point of view of smugglers and drug cartels? Was the Trump era bad for business, or did it actually improve it? That's after the break. You've talked a lot about the smuggler. You've referred to the smuggler. You're kind of like a a smuggler anthropologist. Can you explain to me, Alfredo, From the smuggler's perspective, what is happening? Like, I'm curious, was Donald Trump good for their business? Is Joe Biden better for their business? If you're a smuggler, how do you read the the geopolitics coming from the U.S.?
2: If I'm a smuggler, it's the unintended consequences (laughs) that I'm looking for. Donald Trump was great for the smuggling business because Mm -hmm. of all the attention to the wall. Uh, of the intention, you know, family separations, the smugglers were able to turn that around and say, now is your time because things are going to get so much more difficult. You got to come now. You got to come now. Guatemala, Arti, was the place that I went to. And, and usually when I, when I traveled to Central America and Mexico, I always put my press credentials outside so that people can see that I'm a reporter. But mm-hmm. I remember being in Guatemala, interviewing people, and this woman just looked at me Because I said, I'm a reporter. I'm I'm traveling from El Paso. And when I used the word El Paso, she immediately thought of me as a smuggler. Hmm. And she said, you're not a reporter. You're a smuggler. And you're coming here to take people away from our community. Hmm. You're trying to sell them this and that. You know, I was a little worried at first, but then I was really curious, like, what do you mean? Hmm. And we we started talking some more and and, you know, realized that there were actually smugglers coming in from Mexico or from Guatemala who work with Mexican organizations. And they go around these towns. And again, they act like tour guides. They, They sell them this idea that your life is going to change if you just come with me. I mean, as they become much more and more sophisticated by using WhatsApp or Facebook, even TikTok, And they're able to sell them this idea, you know, showing them videos, how easy it is to get across. I mean, for example, right now, you know, again, going back to Title 42, they're exploiting the idea that you can come back to the border. You don't even have to bring your kids anymore. Come to the border and we'll give you three, five tries for a certain amount of money.
0: A flat rate.
2: A flat rate to get across, to get back and forth.
0: I'm imagining the TikTok video. It's like literally the the border dance or whatever it might be. I mean, I'm not trying TikTok, to make fun of it. But. No,
2: I mean there was a TikTok <laughs> video of, of showing of uh, migrants getting over the wall with the help of a ladder, and showing mm-hmm. just how easy it was.
0: That's smugglers. Let's talk for a moment about drug cartels. I mean, you've spent a great part of your your reporting career covering cartels. Your life was at some point threatened by cartel activity. You wrote about that in in your first book, Midnight in Mexico. From the cartels perspe- from various cartels' perspective, there have been so many changes happening in the U.S. I mean, marijuana legalization, two different uh, administrations, most recently Trump and then Biden. But the perspective of drug cartels, who's good for business, who's bad for business, what's happening there?
2: From their perspective, human smuggling is incredibly profitable for them. And you're not seeing the rivalries, the divisions among cartels. I mean, if you have a smuggler, It's easy to cut a deal with uh, whoever's in charge of uh, of the region. For for example, you know, let's take Ciudad Juarez, where you have the uh, Sinaloa cartel versus the Juarez cartel, otherwise known as La Linea. There is so much money to be made through the human commodity that there's no need for infighting. So you have these cartels that will work hand in hand with the smugglers. Uh, they will share the intelligence reports with each other. They, they share the drivers, you know, the, how to get people to the border, including Uber drivers or Lyft drivers. I mean, they're that coordinated. It's become cohesive. I've been looking to see, you know, when does the, uh, infighting, when do the guns come out between cartels over smuggling routes? But I'm told by people, uh, with intelligence, that that's the surprising thing. There is so much money to be made that there's no need to fight each other.
0: And I'm sorry, with the cartels involved in the smuggling, because they've made smuggling their add-on business or because they're riding off of the smugglers to to get people crossing to bring drugs along with them? Like, how how does that work?
2: Both. I mean, you have cartels who will charge a smuggler to operate in a certain route in exchange for also allowing certain migrants to put uh, hard drugs in their bags, whether it's fentanyl, cocaine, or something else, you uh, know, a pot is no longer such a big deal, but these hard drugs are. So it works for them. I mean, there's money to be made by crossing people across, uh, you know, over the border or by the smugglers renting out, if you will, paying a, uh, a franchise price to use a certain part of the border region.
0: I'm sorry, a franchise price? I don't understand.
2: If I'm uh, in Ciudad Juárez and I say, "Hey, I want to be able to operate in this certain area." That becomes my spot. That's where I make my money. And I mean some smugglers refer to it as uh I have paid for my little franchise, my little spot at a certain corner of of the border. I mean, it's again, it's so profitable for the uh cartels, you know, because it again, if you're smuggling drugs and those drugs are confiscated, you lose that shipment. But human beings, they become a commodity. If they're kicked back, especially under Title 42, they're just as profitable.
0: So specifically the decision under President Trump to do automatic expulsions.
2: Exactly. I mean, people coming back and forth. I mean, no one really loses. So again, that's the unintended consequence of the Trump administration, of that policy.
0: So the unintended consequence being if you immediately kick people out, they're not going to lose their will to try to come in again but then the smuggler and or cartel in partnership or, or whatnot, they can basically increase their charging price to get you back in.
2: Right. I mean, one of the things we've seen in the last year is just the prices have gone up so much. I mean, I would say during the beginning, the middle part of the Trump administration, the prices you heard was three to $5,000 and then it became $7,000. Over the last year to now, it's ten, 000, fifteen thousand. 15000 if you're coming from Brazil or some other country, you know, in South America, it might even be higher. So it's, it's just become that much more profitable.
0: Okay. We've been talking a lot about border security and economics of smuggling and crossing and the drivers for the migrant who is, you know, the person deciding whether or not they're going to pay and, and what, what motivates that. I want to talk about another aspect of the border which is not actually security, but just the fact of binational communities. I mean, that's a term you you pretty much never hear in our national conversation, but one that you in your writing and reporting use quite frequently or evoke, uh, the notion of there are communities, there are cities that are basically sister cities, twin cities, but they're on different sides of the border. For example, El Paso and Ciudad Juarez. they are a binational community. What is that?
2: I mean, El Paso, Ciudad Juarez, uh, Las Cruces. I mean, we are three states, two countries, side by side. I mean, we are an island. There's nothing else between us. You know, you want to get to Albuquerque, you want to get to Tucson, Phoenix, Dallas, you're at least three, four hours away. So it's these three communities that depend on one another that happen to have, in this case, you know, a thirty foot wall between them, but really. I often think of of the border as really a a peek into the future, a very Mm -hmm. vibrant community, communities that work with each other economically, communities Mm -hmm. that need one another, which means we must be tolerant. There has to be, you know, a, a sense of generosity in order to get ahead. I don't think El Paso would survive much without Ciudad Juarez or vice versa. You have uh, more than 100,000 people, Americans, uh, either permanent residents or U.S. citizens who work in Ciudad Juarez or who work in Chihuahua or who live in Chihuahua and, in Texas. I mean, there are communities that, are, that go back and forth. And we've seen that in a much more of a complete way during the pandemic when the traffic was cut off to non-essential travel, which means only if you had a reason to either work or see a doctor, you, know, you can go back and forth. And and the end result of that is you have so many neighborhoods right along the border that are really hurting economically because one side or the other is not being able to cross again.
0: Let's, let's talk about the COVID impact of a binational community in a moment. I, I do want to go there, but just sort of establish the concept. So you're saying that, you know, for example, there you've got 100,000 Americans that need to get into Juarez or Chihuahua regularly for work or because they actually happen to live there. That, that fact— Of people having to go back and forth in both directions, you know, tens of thousands of people a day. Is that fair to say?
2: Yeah, thousands a day, Mm -hmm. either to school or to work or as a family.
0: Mm -hmm. So, what can the fact of this binational community teach us about how we should be managing the border?
2: A lot, I mean, if you talk to people on the border, you know, it's especially now with uh, vaccination, it teaches you. You have to have empathy, compassion for each side, a, a sense of mutual understanding, a sense of being able to help each other in order to exist and to thrive. Because right now, for example, about 25% of the Paso population is, is getting vaccinated. You see, that quite as less than 1%. They know that they can't really move forward without one another. They can't literally move healthy without you know, both sides being vaccinated.
0: Like El Paso needs people in Juarez to be healthy and vaccinated for El Pasoans to resume their normal interactions with
2: et cetera. Life. I mean, Texas has just lifted the mandate for face masks and said, mm-hmm. you know, open hundred percent. That news in Ciudad Juarez was really shocking and really scary because suddenly you might have Americans going into Ciudad Juarez with this attitude with this with this sense of I don't have to wear a face mask anymore. And and so they're they're very scared. So, what does that mean for their own health when vaccinating Zio Aquatis or other border communities may not happen till 2022 or late into 2022? So mm-hmm. there is um, much concern about that.
0: Okay, we're going to take another short break, but when we come back, hearing about the complicated dynamics of the border, the fact of binational communities, people who live there, it all makes me wonder. Is the border a problem that cannot be solved? Is the real problem that we've been using the wrong set of tools? That's after the break. The border is an intractable problem. Okay, intractable meaning people have tried to solve the problem for a very long time. It can't solve. And It's like if you change any one aspect of regulating the border, it opens up a world of hurt and, as you say, unintended consequences like we just discussed, okay? And when I learn about problems that are intractable, sometimes they're intractable because you're simply solving them with the wrong toolkit, okay? And let me give you an example. Let's take how the U.S. has treated drug users, and how that treatment of drug users has changed over the decades. It used to be that people who use drugs, that they were seen purely as criminals. They should be arrested and locked up. And that is changing, okay? We are getting rid of mandatory minimum sentencing. We are locking up less. We are increasingly coming to see drug use not as a crime problem, but as a mental health problem, right? We've legalized marijuana in many places. There's a shift in the framework, And when you shift the framework, you also then change who is at the table solving the problem. Fewer prosecutors, more psych and mental health experts, you know, for example. So here's my question to you. How would you frame what is the problem at the border? And who would you bring to the table to solve that problem?
2: I often see the problem at the border as Mexicans being the enablers for America's charade. We're... We know that that the reason why drugs get across is because there's a huge demand in the United States. We know that, you know, much of of what happens in Mexico, the the killings, you know, more than 200,000 people killed in the latest chapter of the drug war. It's because of Americans' guns coming south. I mean, Mm -hmm. so many people have died in Mexico because of the demand in the United States.
0: Can you explain to me a little bit more when you say to you part of the problem is Mexico being enablers? How do you solve that problem?
2: I don't know that you can. I mean, the United States is obviously, you know, is a superpower here and they can change the dynamics. I mean, we saw that so well under President Trump, you know, and bullying Mexico to do this and that. And, And Mexico basically trying to stay afloat. I mean, their economies are so intertwined that Mexico is often at a huge, huge disadvantage. So what do you do? I mean, you basically become the enabler you basically kind of go along with whatever the United States is doing, even though what they're doing in the end is going to put your population very much at risk. And, and that's something that I often get whenever I talk to Mexican officials or, or the population in general, you know, just how they see the United States essentially bullying them into this position or that position. Uh, and, and, you know, especially over the last few years, I mean, you, you saw the charade in the United States. I think we lost a lot of the moral authority in Mexicans, really began to see through that. I mean, as a journalist, I mean, and this is the wee tricky part because in this sense, the Mexican side of me, you know, we would look to the United States as a way to, how do we protect our journalists? How do we protect our freedom of expression? And for a country like Mexico that's trying to become a more solid democracy, the United States was the example. Obviously, mm-hmm. what we saw in the last four years, whether it's uh, journalists it's suddenly the enemies of the people the fake news i think not just mexicans but people throughout the world and people in latin america saw that as you know is this really what we want to become i remember going through mexico as i cover the uh, the drug war always with my credentials and always telling my colleagues you know mexico is one of the uh, most dangerous countries as a journalist i mean to cover stories again you know we have regions of silence but I remember telling my colleagues uh, why this little credential that said I was an American journalist would protect not only me but protect freedom of expression. And suddenly, under the Trump years, you had so many people saying, "Really? Is that what you meant?"
0: And it sounds like specifically people like you who wanted their home countries to become thriving democracies lost hope in that possibility because they saw the turn the U.S. took.
2: Exactly. I mean. And there are many people like me. I mean, either people Mm -hmm. who were educated Mm -hmm. in in the United States or people who consider themselves binational. On my end, it was always this very personal battle, if you will, between father and son. Between a son who didn't really want to come to the United States, didn't understand the promise, the the sense that life was better. You know, as a kid, Mm -hmm. I mean, I I always questioned my father about that.
0: Mm -hmm. You know, you're giving me direct entree to the part of the conversation where we get into your personal journey, which I, <laughs> I very much want to have, um, just given that you're not just a journalist at the forefront of this, but you're also a Mexican-American. And it's interesting during our conversation to hear where you evoke they versus us, because I think that in your identity, you go back and forth a lot between where you belong and which one you are. Okay. Okay. Your family came to the U.S. originally through the Bracero program. It's a program that from about World War II to the Vietnam War uh, was created by executive order to bring labor, Mexican labor, into America while American young people were fighting wars abroad. Your dad was a Bracero. You kind of were, too, working as, you know, a teenager in the fields, dropping out of high school early. Though That arguably is because you didn't want to be in school. Alfredo, you did not want— to live in America. That was not your dream. It was your parents' dream. You wanted Mexico to be your home.
2: Well, I had every reason to want Mexico to be my home. I mean, I I had the idyllic life as a kid. Your father is part of this Bracero program from 1942 to 1964. Uh, There's like 5 million Mexicans working abroad. But my father was one of these uh, millions of, of Mexicans who would send money back home every two weeks, you know, the remittances. We had a little life in, in Mexico, in Durango, Mexico. My, my mother owned a, a grocery store that was supported by whatever money my father sent. I would head to the next big town, which is Gomez Palacio. We'd buy toys, we buy you know food, candy, we'd sell. I mean, it was this idyllic life. I didn't even know as a kid who my father was. I mean, there was this Mm. strange man who would come under the Bracero program. He he would come for three, four months out of the year. And I would look at him and refer to him as este señor or oiga, my little Santa Claus, who would come bearing (laughs) gifts. So Mm -hmm. the idea of leaving that behind was not something that I looked forward to as a young kid. You know, coming to the United States, uh, I mean, the first idea was like, you know, we're going to live in this uh, building that looked like the state capital of California. Mm. only to realize that, no, we were living in a trailer house in the middle of a melon field. You know, that didn't help give you a, a better impression of the U.S.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting because it's, I mean, that first impression, you know, it's like you can be well-to-do in Durango or, you know, poor in America. <laughs> and your parents, and you had clearly very different takes on which one was preferable. But as you get older, Alfredo, you hold on to wanting Mexico to be your home. I mean, so many first-generation migrants come here, feel the shell shock of, you know, initial poverty, of culture change, whatnot, but acclimate and take to it and decide they want to stick around. But you really, you know, you worked hard to design a life where you could go back and be Mexican, and you were rooting for that country to be successful and your home.
2: I mean, I always say that the reason I got into journalism was because it was my opportunity. It was a way, it was a journey to reconnect with my roots, with my culture, with my language. I mean, you grew up as a kid. I I think there was a distinction, you know, between my father and my mother. I mean, my mother was the romantic one, was the nostalgic one, was the one who would sing these, you know, Mexican rancheras at home. So I kind of live Mexico through her eyes, whereas my father was the one looking forward, looking ahead. The one who felt that, you know, this country is going to provide for big things for my kids, you know, for the entire family. So it was that conflict, you know, the, the who do I believe? Now, well, I believe my mother because I grew up with her, you know, back in Mexico. So mm. that was always the struggle. That was always the battle of the conflict, you know, the United States, Mexico. And, and what did I leave behind? What did I miss behind? I mean, I mean, that was really the concept between Midnight and Mexico was, the the kid with this romantic notion who your first back. yeah who goes back home, and it's nothing like the way you imagined
0: it. No, you write really movingly in that book. I found it to be utterly gripping and page turning. You write about that kid who then becomes that adult who then becomes that Wall Street Journal reporter who goes back, and it's like you you're really rooting for the country. You're the guy who's constantly preaching to other people. No, democracy is coming. It can come. It's like you know you have that faith. And then you arrive at a turning point where you, where you actually seem to lose hope in that.
2: It's like whiplash, you know. <laughs> you find hope and then you lose it. I mean, one reason why I resisted going to Philadelphia, going to the Wall Street Journal for so long was the idea that I was living on the border. The idea that there was a revolution in Mexico. You know, there, was, there was a chance for an opposition party to take over power in Mexico. And then you would see the, the beginnings, the formings of a democracy. I mean, that was back in the late 80s, early 90s. Here we are in 2021. I mean, you realize that it's not always going to work out that way, you know, the way you imagined it. And you're seeing it through the eyes of an American, this very difficult stage of of questioning your own institutions. And you begin to see, you know, just how difficult, the difficult journey for Mexico to build its own democratic journey. I think that's why I'm so drawn to the border because mm. it's here mm. where you really don't have to choose between one country or the other. You built your own little community right on the border. Mm-hmm.
0: You just have to acclimate to the 30-foot wall that's that's dropped somewhere, <laughs> in some part of it.
2: Uh, yeah, that's, that's heavy. Sometimes I, I drive along the border and I say, you know, how the hell are they going to try to separate us, us from them? It's just not going to happen. Not with the 30-foot wall. I mean, As Carlos Fuentes said, I mean, it's this wound that's been drawn between us as two nations.
0: But you say, how the hell are they going to separate us from them? It's not going to happen. Why?
2: Because we're one family. Because we depend on one another. Because if we're going to, you know, move forward, we have to lift the others. You know, our walls, it's not going to separate us. You know, even today, if you talk to people on the field, you know, uh, the U.S. law enforcement officials on the field, they will tell you, you know, the law was one of the biggest mistakes that the Trump administration ever made.
0: You know, something that <laughs> that became a, a quiet conversation between me and and a handful of friends I want to share with you. When Trump referred to certain places as quote unquote shithole countries, okay. This is not something you know, I publicly tweeted in any way, but like him calling certain places shithole countries, it stung for some of us because a lot of us really do have love for back home. We're rooting for back home and we're disappointed by back home, wherever that may be, all mixed up into one. And I'm just kind of curious for you, what was your visceral reaction to that term, you know, rolling off his tongue?
2: Well, I was still trying to... Uh... Wrap my mind around the fact that we were criminals, we were bringing diseases, we were rapists, and then suddenly you're also a shithole country. Mm. I I can't really say that it was stunning, or I can't say it was disappointing, but I also can't tell you that, you know, there wasn't this anger, this inside of you. And then to realize that really, you know, these words were meant to lift his base But here on the border, it also invited hate and led to hate crimes. I mean, I think anyone in El Paso these days, you know, as the border again becomes the forefront in the news and, you know, the idea of separation of families. And now we have a governor saying they're coming over and spreading COVID.
0: Mm -hmm. But hey, folks in Texas, you don't have to wear your masks anymore.
2: Exactly. I mean, you you cringe because Mm -hmm. you know what happened in El Paso, August 3rd. 2019, when yeah. a gunman came here inspired by all this hatred, all this rhetoric, and killed 23 people and injured dozens.
0: Right. Let's talk for a moment about the El Paso shooting, which happened at a Walmart. So, a white male shooter who explicitly set out to get Hispanics, Latinx folks. Uh, it happened on your dad's birthday. And you wrote about it. You wrote, quote, Given that the entire Southwest once belonged to Mexico, the shooter from Allen, Texas, obviously doesn't know history. Dude, who's invading whom? I mockingly asked myself, growing increasingly pissed off, raw emotions building within me.
2: It was an incredibly sad day. It was a day of of a lot of emotions. It was also a day where, you know, I felt not just resentful at the shooter, but at my own father for for bringing us to the United States, for selling us this idea that uh, this was a country to become something. There was this quiet resentment of, you know, what the fuck does it take to be an American? How do we fit into this country? And it was going back and forth and finally realizing that my dad, it was a turning point for me in that I think I finally began to reconcile our differences. I finally saw, okay, I know what you did and I, and I know why you did it to come here, work your ass off, and try to keep quiet, you know, try to say, ojalá, si Dios quiere, if if God wants us to. It it made me realize, you know, in this country, every generation faces this challenge of protecting a democracy or trying to lift each other, you know, as immigrants to get to the next level.
1: Hmm.
2: And I remember after that day, I mean, in talking to my parents, you know, My father kept saying to me, we got to vote. You got to make sure everybody's registered. You got to make sure. I don't care how they vote, but we have to get off the sidelines. Mm. And that, I think since then, you know, this battle between father and son really began to, the the rending, you know, the mending of one another.
0: I kind of get what you're saying. I want you to drill into. just help me to understand it a little bit more. Why did the El Paso shooting raise this fundamental core of resentment you've had towards your dad?
2: Because that could have, the victims could have been us. I mean, it it could have been anyone who looked brown, who who looked Mexican, Mexican Mexican-American. And it it made me realize, you know, that could have been my father. That could have been Mm. the guy who lured us north with this idea that, you know, if you just come here to the United States and you work your ass off and and you're a good citizen, you pay off your taxes, you don't get in trouble, that in itself will guarantee that you move forward. Mm. And it made me realize, you know, I bought into my father's speech or uh, into his vision, you know, by going around the country in, in Mexico and telling my colleagues, my journalism colleagues, if Mexico only has these strong institutions, the country would get better. But at least in the United States, I mean, I, it made me realize that, yes, my father had gotten us this far, but it's really up to the next generation To make sure that my father's history or the history of of so many Mexican-Americans, Hispanics, or other minorities, you know, that their history is not erased by a lunatic who drives 10 hours with the simple goal of killing Mexicans, of killing people who look like me.
0: Alfredo, politically, we're at a very distinct inflection point in America, okay? We're seeing a robust social movement best encapsulated by Black Lives Matter. Social movements that are indicting the past as they want more for the future. And, you know, there's a question that I that I have that I really struggle with personally as someone who, who thinks that there's a lot to indict about the past. Uh, and that question is, how much do you really need to litigate what happened before to move into progress, to move into the future? Does litigating the past help or harm the effort for progress? And, you know, I, I I guess I pose that question to you right now. For example, you know, President Biden has made immigration reform a top priority. Uh, There's a very ugly, messy past there. You know it very well. Do you think it's necessary to bring it up to move forward or not?
2: That's a tough one, Artie, because uh, I think it's not so much litigating the past, but I think it's dealing with America's own hypocrisy, dealing with the two faces of this country. We're trying to reconcile what America is. I mean, I often feel like I came at the right time. I don't think I could be an American today. I don't think I would pass the test to be an American because the bar has, has been set so high for convenience and, and for fear of the others. But then, as I told my father recently, you know, with the new administration coming in, with the governor not going on a on rampage against you know, immigrants, bringing COVID, et cetera, I, I told my father, I'm, I'm sorry that you have to go through this again. It was the three of us watching the news. And he said something that really kind of made me understand, you know, things a little clearer. He said, once we get COVID under control, this country is going to need the immigrant Mm -hmm. to come in and help rebuild this country. That's the story of this country. That's the story of this nation. And he he didn't dwell on it. He just saw it very clearly. (laughs) It's just a statement of fact. Right. It's what America is. It's what this country has always been about, you know. You beat them when you can. You beat them when it's convenient. But like going back to Carlos Joaquin, he's got job offers all over the place because there's demand for him. And he's going to tell his story back to Guatemala and it's going to get around and people are going to continue coming. And my, and my father's correct, you know. If you want to rebuild this country, you're going to have to depend a lot on that immigrant coming in and help you put it back together.
0: Hmm. Something that's incredibly clear is migration is not going to stop. You know, if anything, technology and climate change will drive more of it. That's according to the experts. And also within the nation state structure, migrants lack influence. You know, think about how Central Americans are treated in Mexico and in the U.S., right? I mean, migrants are this enormous constituency that are by design left out of the political process, huge power disbalances at play. So when you think about that constituency moving forward, who can effectively advocate for migrants?
2: Well, obviously you have the advocates, but I think it's really their children. I mean, one thing that's it's kind of inspired me about El Paso is that this is a city of immigrants, you know, and it's, it's the latest generation who are pushing forward, who are pushing to make sure that this becomes the country that their parents dreamed of or believed in.
0: Alfredo Corchado, Mexico City Bureau Chief for the Dallas Morning News, author of two fantastic books, Homelands and Midnight in Mexico. Thank you for talking with us today.
2: Thank you, Arti. It's been a pleasure.
1: Arthi Shahani is also the host of the WBEZ podcast, The Art of Power. Check it out. This week's episode of Vox Conversations was produced by Amy Drastavska. Daniel Turek mixed and mastered this episode. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Liz Kelly Nelson is our executive producer and editorial director of Vox Podcast. If you like the show, let us know. Room for improvement. We want to hear that, too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, what we can improve. And if you have ideas for future guest, guest host, or topics, send us your thoughts at Vox.com. And hey, if you like this episode, share it with your friends, rate and review, and come back next week for a brand new episode. Thanks so much for listening.